20-Minute History is an independent operation made possible with the help of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so through the Acast supporter feature linked in the episode notes, or by going to patreon.com slash 20minhistory. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm David A. Bradbury, and this is 20-minute history. On today's episode, if you want to know what it takes to become a civil rights hero and figurehead, you need look no further than Fred Korematsu, an activist who took his fight against Japanese-American internment all the way to the Supreme Court in 1944, and whose legacy begs us to stand up and fight for what's right, even when what's right is not what's popular. This is Season 1, Episode 1. Let's jump right in. Fred Toyosaburo Korematsu was born on January 30th, 1919, in Oakland, California. The third of four sons, Korematsu spent his entire youth in Oakland, attending Castlemont High School in the mid-1930s and, unsurprisingly, encountering a fair amount of discrimination during that time. Indeed, as his daughter recounted when writing his biography on behalf of the Korematsu Institute, Fred Korematsu attempted to enlist in the U.S. National Guard and Coast Guard when he turned 18. But recruiters told him that they had received explicit orders, quote, not to accept you. Yeah, the opinions of white America toward Japanese people, yeah, they weren't great. (gasps) I know, I know, shocker, racism against Japanese Americans in the 1930s, unheard of. And it didn't exactly help their situation that Japan and the U.S. as countries were not the best of friends back then. Granted, they weren't at war just yet, but in the 1930s, Japan had done some major territorial expansion. It invaded Manchuria in 1931 and went to war again with a divided China in 1937. Then at the end of that same year, Japan conquered and proceeded to ravage the geographic capital of the Chinese Nationalist Party in a raid now known as the Rape of Nanking. Being supporters of the Chinese nationalists in the war against communism, the Americans and their government, well, they weren't very happy. Now, all of this combined with a ripe history of anti-Asian discrimination in California made Korematsu a prime target for racist bigotry. And then on December 7th, 1941, well, you know. December 7th, 1941 a date which will live in infamy. The Empire of Japan bombed Pearl Harbor Naval Base, the United States declared war on Japan, and Germany declared war on the United States. Now, in the midst of all this mess, FDR and his advisors became a little concerned about the security threat of Japanese Americans living on the West Coast. The thinking went that if Japan staged an invasion, the possibility of espionage from people with Japanese ancestry posed a significant threat to the U.S. war effort. 
This is, to use a technical term, bullshit, especially since most of the people they were concerned about were U.S. citizens. In fact, Korematsu himself was a Nisei, a second-generation Japanese-American. He personally had absolutely no ties to Japan beyond his parents, who were born there. But nevertheless, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed EO 9066 in 1942, authorizing the relocation of Japanese people into concentration camps. But in all likelihood, you already knew all of this, so just consider it a brief recap, and let's now rejoin our friend Mr. Korematsu. Korematsu clearly felt the pressures of being a Japanese-American man, as his biography admits. In order to better defy government-mandated relocation, quote, he underwent minor plastic surgery to alter his eyes in an attempt to look less Japanese. He also changed his name to Clyde Sarah and claimed to be of Spanish and Hawaiian descent. Alas, his attempts failed. Korematsu was arrested in San Francisco by the FBI in May of 1942. This is also where lower courts found him guilty of violating military orders and sentenced him to five years probation. He was sent to the Assembly Center in San Bruno to await relocation to Topaz, Utah. But the story for Fred Korematsu was not to end here, because while in San Francisco, he agreed to let the ACLU appeal his case. And even though the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court upheld the decision of the trial court, the Supreme Court eventually agreed to hear the case. The highest court in the land was set to hear arguments for Korematsu versus the United States in October of 1944. Oral arguments lasted two days, from October 11th through the 12th, with the question at hand being this. Do the war powers that the U.S. Constitution grants its president include the power to relocate its citizens against their will? Or more generally, to deprive its citizens of their civil or even human rights in the interest of national security? And on December 18th, Korematsu and his lawyers got their answer. In a 6-3 split decision, the Supreme Court decided that although FDR's executive order wouldn't be constitutional under normal circumstances, the threat of war provided the needed justification to temporarily suspend the rights of some of its citizens. EO 9066 was allowed to stand. Korematsu lost his case, and he stayed in camp for the remainder of the war. I fully realize that this seems a disappointing end to Korematsu's story, and I promise that he will get a more fitting conclusion in a moment. But first, I want to take some time to appreciate two reasons why Korematsu's loss is nonetheless notable in civil rights discourse today. The first is that Korematsu's story sounds eerily similar to Martin Luther King Jr.'s, to Rosa Parks, to Bobby Seale's, and, and countless others. I simply cannot name them all here. So many heroes of racial justice failed at first crack and ended up in prison, and come to think of it, many of them probably would have even told you that they were proud of that fact. In the words of fellow Oakland resident Bobby Seale, to be a revolutionary is to be an enemy of the state. So that's the first reason. Now the second reason is a little bit more pedantic, but I think it's going to be pretty cool once we get to the end of it, so please stick with me here. There actually might be a justification for considering Korematsu versus the United States a landmark civil rights decision, even though Korematsu lost. And that's due to a little thing called Supreme Court precedent. Let me show you what I mean by examining some research. In Korematsu and Beyond, Japanese Americans and the Origins of Strict Scrutiny, authors Greg and Tony Robinson introduce us to the idea so important that they put it in their title, Strict Scrutiny. 
What is it? Well, the Robinsons explain that Justice Hugo Black, a Southern legal man and author of the majority opinion in Korematsu, was a, a little put off by Justice Frank Murphy's caustic dissent that the decision was, quote, a legalization of racism. So, Justice Black, trying not to be a f- racist, concluded his majority opinion with this, and I quote, It should be noted that all legal restrictions which curtail the civil rights of a single racial group are immediately suspect. That is not to say that all such restrictions are unconstitutional. It is to say that courts must subject them to the most rigid scrutiny. Pressing public necessity may sometimes justify the existence of such restrictions. Racial antagonism never can. Now, there is a lot to unpack here, between leaving out the state of racial antagonisms against Japanese people at the time, and the fact that this principle was not aptly applied in the post-war years, but... The core of the issue here is that the precedent that the majority opinion established in Korematsu, along with a few other cases, paved the way to numerous civil rights milestones. These include Oyama versus California, which struck down California's alien land law, to potentially Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, which ordered the desegregation of public schools. Now, obviously, there's a lot that I'm leaving out here for the sake of brevity, so if you are interested in this topic, I highly recommend you seek out the Robinson's paper in the Law and Contemporary Problems Journal. So with that little tangent out of the way, let's finish Korematsu's story. After spending a decent portion of his life fighting legal battles in front of the Supreme Court and residing in a Japanese-American concentration camp, I suppose that you could say that the rest of Korematsu's life was, well a little bit less eventful? Maybe? At least for a little while, because after his release, Korematsu moved from Salt Lake City to eventually Detroit, finding employment wherever he could, and eventually marrying his life partner Catherine in 1949. He then moved back to the California Bay Area where he had grown up. But then, as sometimes happens with the history of racial politics and civil rights injustices, leaders began trying to undo some of the damage they had done. It started with President Gerald Ford overturning EO 9066 in 1976, accompanied by an official apology, and from there, the attempts to remedy the harm continued from one president to the next for 20-plus years. After that, an official investigation by the Carter administration uncovered new evidence of governmental misconduct during the trial that allowed the Korematsu case to be reopened and in time overturned. And look, I know we just got done with the tangent, but you're going to have to allow me one more, because many scholars argue that the case which officially overturned Korematsu was, believe it or not, Trump versus Hawaii. Savvy listeners will recognize this decision as the case which legalized temporary travel restrictions against people moving to the United States from many Muslim-majority countries. This is because the dissenting opinions in Trump, and in particular Justice Sonia Sotomayor, forced Chief Justice Roberts to acknowledge in his majority opinion that the decision in Korematsu, quote, has no place in law under the Constitution. One might say that it's not quite fitting and maybe a little bit ironic that one civil rights mistake was overturned by another, but I digress. Back to Korematsu's story for the last time. President Ronald Reagan signed a reparations bill into law in 1988, saying, Yes, the nation was then at war, struggling for its survival, and it's not for us today to pass judgment upon those who may have made mistakes while engaged in that great struggle. 
Yet we must recognize that the internment of Japanese Americans was just that, a mistake. And then in 1998, 54 years after the Supreme Court struck down the Korematsu case, finally, President Bill Clinton awarded to Fred Korematsu the Presidential Medal of Freedom, one of the nation's highest honors. President Clinton had this comment to make at the ceremony. In the long history of our country's constant search for justice, some names of ordinary citizens stand for millions of souls. Plessy, Brown, Parks. To that distinguished list, today we add the name of Fred Korematsu. In one of his last campaigns as an activist, Korematsu became one of many Japanese-American protesters to lobby in favor of Arab Americans in the post-9-11 era. And finally, in 2005, Korematsu died and was buried after a service was held in his hometown of Oakland, California. He was 86. Though Korematsu remains relatively unknown when compared to figureheads like MLK, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, and others, there is no doubt that his legacy speaks for itself. While facing injustice, hatred, and oppression, Korematsu waged a war, and yes, pun very much intended, against the United States legal system and, in a sense, its very constitution. And though he lost initially, he never gave up his fight. He fought for what he knew to be right, even when those around him didn't have that knowledge just yet. In my view, he earns his place in history by persevering until he had won a landmark case. And if that's not enough to add the title of civil rights hero to his name, then I genuinely don't know what is. Thank you so much for listening to the very first episode of 20 Minute History. We are clearly still a very young, low-key, and evolving operation. But nonetheless, if you like this episode, then please consider subscribing and leaving a rating. If you're looking for more content, you can also check us out on social media. I'll be on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 20minhistory. A special thank you as well to the Korematsu Institute, Greg Robinson and Tony Robinson, all of whom conducted research that informed this episode. Tune in next week as we're going to be taking a look at the runner-up to discovering a foundational biological theory. But until then, I've been David A. Bradbury, and please stay curious, keep reading, and never stop learning. Lest you know what repeats itself. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 